Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Nick Pilata, who is the production manager at URM. He's been on the podcast before, and, I mean, if you watch Nail the Mix or are in the community, you know who he is and what he does. He's a core member of the team who has been around for several years now and has definitely helped us innovate and is a complete and total badass at what he does. I figured it was time to bring him back on because last time we had him on was several years ago and his life was kind of in a different spot than it is now. So anyways, let's do this. Nick Pilato, welcome back to the URM podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Interesting having you on here. I mean, obviously we work together almost every day. So it's kind of interesting talking to you in this context, but a lot has changed since the last time you came on. Yeah, a lot has definitely changed since uh, our last podcast. I think at that point we were talking more about, you know, my internship with Andrew and everything on that avenue. And, and now it's more, you know, like you said, we're we're kind of working day to day together here, which is awesome. What role does uh, audio play in your life at this point? I think a lot of what audio plays in my life right now is is more or less just what I do when it comes to the fast tracks and the content being recorded. A lot of the the tips that I learned about, you know, how to use compression and how, you know, EQ works and everything factors more into how I would process, you know, a lav mic or a, a mic that's being recorded for course, stuff like that, uh, that, 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 those are the things that I'm mixing predominantly these days. Um, minus, you know, uh, recording some, some stuff with, with my quote unquote band with my buddies from, from home that we, we write some music together here and there. And, and that keeps me up to date with, with what's going on, but also nail the mix keeps me up to date with what's going on. Cause I still get to, which I'm sure that's probably similar for you as well, where, where you're watching people mix who are mixing daily, you know, as their main career. So it's nice to see what's actually happening in the scene these days or with with what with modern mixing techniques and everything. And then I sort of take those and, you know, bring it into my personal projects, but then predominantly do do a lot of the tricks that I see uh on 
you know, guest vocals and stuff like that. I have noticed that when doing this, like URM, or I guess anything that's not doing audio or music as like the number one, like creating it, if you're not careful, your skills can get stagnant, I guess, or your knowledge of what's going on can get stagnant. I guess a lot of the traditional education or even older online education or those mail order DVDs from like years past all had a very stale feel to them. And I have always thought that it's because the people involved weren't actively trying to keep up, I guess, with the cutting edge and innovate. Yeah. Even though I'm not mixing anymore, I'm paying real close attention to what's going on out there. And I think that the fact that you keep on making music and you'll like, you'll take jobs for producers here and there. I think that that really, really helps uh, you keep your head in the game and keeps everything that we do ahead of the curve, I guess. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah, I take a lot of things that I've learned from Nail the Mixes and like you said, put it towards what work that I do with other producers. For instance, I, I, I don't know if I can announce what the project is, but I'm working on, I did, I did work on a really cool project with Sean O'Keefe. He asked me to, to be his mix assistant and assistant engineer on the project. But part of that was, you know, creating the trigger tracks and everything for the drums. And I used a lot of tricks that people like Christian Donaldson have shown on their Nail the Mix. And I use similar, you know, tick approaches where they're, they're little spike ticks for the actual transient to trigger off of and everything. So yeah, there's a lot of things that I've learned that, that I've implemented better habits in my workflow. And hopefully the same is happening for all of our subscribers. I know what the same is happening for all of our subscribers because uh, I constantly see many posts of just like, you know, I, I tried this thing from blank nail the mix and I'm like, man, that was three years ago. You're still watching that. That's, all, that, that's so awesome that, that that this is still reoccurring and and, and these tips are still bit being beneficial for the community because I was thinking about it too. Like we have like, I think we're five episodes away from 100 nail the mixes. Holy shit. Yeah, just the fact that we have this catalog of so many amazing bands and producers giving us their insight. And even if it's the same producer, they're going to show us three new things or five new things about their workflow. At the time of this recording, we're, we're going to be, next month will be Andrew Wade and, and Wage War. And I'm sure he's going to be showing us a bunch of new crazy things, just like he did when he had the Attila nail the mix and, and all that stuff. So I'm just excited to, to continue seeing this catalog grow and you know, help everyone, including myself. Well, what's interesting about repeating producers or mixers, I think is because the people that we have on are not stagnant, it doesn't get stagnant to have them on because these are people that keep on pushing themselves. But what it seems like I've noticed in the audio work that you do is that even though you're not doing it full time, I, I mean, honestly, I don't know how many hours or days you spend on it, but I know you're not doing it full time. I know that it's a when you can kind of thing or when it comes up kind of thing. I feel like your audio work has only gotten better and better and better. And normally the only way that that happens is if somebody is working on it full time. But it seems like uh, every time you go to do audio, whatever that you've been working on with fast tracks or nail the mixes or whatever has uh, marinated in there and then just comes out when you go to work. It's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying that because it feels like I've been improving. I know a lot of producers experience the plateau aspect of things where there's a there's a large steep learning section where you're learning a lot and you're improving really quickly. And then there's like a large plateau right after that where you're, you're using those tricks and nothing is really taking the next level, I suppose. And then 
once you get past that plateau and you're sort of climbing up again a little bit, I think I'm I'm right at the peak of that, like starting to climb up a little bit more with like how fast I'm able to turn things around again and stuff. So it, things I, you know, my brain immediately goes to this thing for this, for this circumstance or, uh, you know, the situation. It's just, it's just very, my brain is a lot more fast to pick up on the tools that I need to, to solve, you know, this guy's mic is plosives every five seconds. How do we fix that? Or, you know, there's a, there's a room noise in this mic that I've pulled out before and I use these three plugins to get that done kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been good. <laughs> Man, plateaus do suck. They suck because you don't know that you're reaching one when you reach it because you just, uh, basically climbed up. So, it feels good when you first get there. Like, wow, I, I know some stuff I didn't before. I've got these new skills. But then you don't even realize that time just starts to go by and there's no real improvement. And then in order to break through the plateau, you kind of have to put in the same amount of work in some ways that you did to get to that plateau in the first place, which I think is kind of scary to some people because I think it's human nature to want the hard work to be behind us, basically. Yeah. But I do think that plateau busting is um, very, very doable if you keep feeding your brain information and keep trying new things. Like it's just going to inevitably happen. Yeah. You might relate to this a lot because of your entire transformation and everything. But right now I'm plateaued right now with how fast I can run. I've been really trying to train sprints because I, I can't get slower than, or I can't get faster than like an eight minute, 30 mile. And I'm trying to get faster. Like a goal of mine in the next two years would be to do a half marathon. So I'm trying to like get faster and, and improve, but I just can't seem to break this barrier right now of getting faster. But I'm hoping that with more training, it'll just sort of lift itself and I'll be able to improve more. <laughs> this year has been a very interesting experiment in the psychology of plateaus because uh, the COVID recovery basically stopped me dead in my tracks. And I think I went up like 20 pounds over the course of like seven months. Now that I feel great again uh, and all the post-COVID symptoms are gone, I'm like back on the exact plan that I was on last year when I made all the changes and I'm already totally in the right direction. But what I've noticed about that is that in order to bust through a plateau, because yeah, like I said, I've been on one for seven or eight months. What I've noticed is I can't do things gradually, but what I do is I look at things in terms of variables. So um, what are the variables that I'm tweaking? So the variables are length of time between meals, amount of stuff within those meals, right? Like macros and calories, water content, sleep amount, time of day that I exercise, length that I exercise, type of exercise. Within the type of exercise, is it like if it's cardio, is it steady state for like an hour? Or is it three minutes run, two minutes walk, three minutes run, two minutes walk? If it's lifting weights, is it full body or is it killing one muscle group and those types of variables. I've been logging everything this entire time going back years. And what I've noticed is I'm going back to what you said. In order for me to bust through the type of thing that you're going through, I need to change multiple variables and at the same time make them more extreme. So if like I'm having trouble running faster then what I'll do is I'll look at, well, how am I fueling myself for, up for these runs? 
And what am I doing that's the same every time that's just leading to these same results? And then I'll change that and be like, okay, so maybe I need to run less time, but try to run as fast as I can in that smaller amount of time. Things like that. I'll just be uh, tweaking lots of different variables until it works. I think that's probably my next step then. Because I, I mean, I've taken a lot of inspiration from you in the recent years. Not that I'm saying you didn't do this prior, but I've noticed that in recent times, you've been really, you've been really adhering to a schedule. And that's something that in our industry is so hard to do because there's, some, there's always something to do, right? There's always some project that needs to get wrapped up or worked on or finished. And, and that's something that I've really tried to put into my workflow as well is like, I need to, to back off when it's time to back off and, and rest myself. Because I used to, I think <laughs> I probably mentioned in the last podcast, but it'd be 16 or 17, 18 hour days that I'd be working straight and just not thinking about it. But that's not sustainable for any human body. And I think I've hit the age, I'm 25 now. It feels bad getting three hours of sleep. Yeah, don't do it. It's not paramount to any success. It will make everything that I do detrimentally worse if I take that time to sleep and that's it. So I've, I've been really working on a, a schedule. There's psychology at play with all this is what I've noticed. Our perception of how much work we have to do to feel good about ourselves isn't always connected to reality. That's like the biggest thing that has helped me get on a schedule uh, and stop every night now has been when I realized that I could beat myself up over not working past a certain amount of time, but that's not going to change the actual work that's getting done. It's just some mental torture I'm putting myself through. What actually is happening when I stop and what's happening when I stop is that I'm way easier to be around, way easier to talk to, and the quality of the work I do gets a lot better. So maybe between 8 p.m. and midnight or something, I'm no longer working like I used to. But how good was the work I was doing at that point in time anyways? And what were the negative side effects of doing that? And I've come to the conclusion that those of us that overwork need to figure out psychologically why we do that. I'm not saying not to work hard, but uh, to figure out why we overwork and deal with that so that we can be a little bit more reasonable because I actually don't think that it gets in the way of productivity, at least from what I've noticed. Like having a stop time has helped me. It's Yeah, it's, it's improved me because it now puts a different goal in mind. It's it, it's like this project, I need to get this project done by five or something, or, or this this thing I have until five to get this thing done. And and that that sort of changes my mind perspective on instead of like, I got to just spend today to get this project done. It's like, well, let's just aim to focus and get this done by this time and get as much of it as you can done. And it's okay to walk away from it. And that was a huge problem for me. It was like, I, I sometimes I can't go to bed if a project is unfinished, if I if I'm halfway through something, and and you know Mallory's like, let's you know let's go eat dinner and watch TV or watch a movie. Like I'll just be sitting there the entire time thinking about that project getting done, and I'm I'm really trying to change my brain into thinking like the world is not going to fall apart overnight because they didn't get this thing that I didn't turn in, unless it's a, a specific due date, which then yeah go ham on it, but. Like if it's just something that is is just my mental block is happening or my mental block is telling me this needs to get done tonight, even though it's not due for a couple of days. It's like, well, I, I, why am I killing myself? Why am I putting myself through 
a rigorous 16 hour day on that. Why am I overthinking? Why am I dwelling on it? I'm just sort of trying to let go of those things now and focus more on, uh, focus more on my mental health and my, my personal life in general, which ultimately will just make the work that I do for, you know, URM for any personal projects way more, I guess better is the word. <laughs> effective. Effective, efficient. I don't think that having dinner with your lady and hanging out with her, like doing that shouldn't have a negative effect on your productivity. It should only, should only help it actually. Right. I had that realization. I was like, why? This is, this is supposed to be a nice time. Like, why am I sitting here stressed about something that it is, that does not even not matter, but doesn't matter right now. You know, it's not, there's no one, no one has a gun to my head telling me to get this thing done. Just relax, loosen up a little bit. Well, pull the gun away from your own head. <laughs> right. Basically. So yeah, you're right. I do adhere to a schedule now and I never used to. This has been the first time in my entire life. Even when I was in high school, I didn't adhere to a schedule. I showed up to high school when I wanted to. And I also left when I wanted to. You badass. I don't know how I passed. <laughs> I just did. I charmed my way through. Yeah, I notoriously sucked with the scheduling and then just started living religiously via the calendar, which I know doesn't sound cool to lots of creative types, but it's been a game changer. Also, my girlfriend is a lot more of a normal human than me. So uh, I've tried to kind of align myself more with that. And it's been very, very helpful because it's not in me to be normal. Kind of, there's this concept I actually learned from Tony Robbins, which is uh, modeling. You know, if someone is doing something successfully that you want to be able to do, model their behavior. So, like, if there's a guitar player who has this fucking amazing vibrato, you want that vibrato too. Well, it doesn't help to just, if you want to sound like them or like take in, you know, incorporate what they do. Well, just listening to it's not enough. You should look at how they stand or how they hold the guitar, the position of their wrist, how hard are they playing? Like, what are they actually physically doing? Because odds are that like if they've got a super wide vibrato or something or alternate pick really, really hard, um, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Zach Wilde right now. There's a way that that dude stands and there's a way that... Uh, that his muscles work. Um, and if you want to sound like even a little bit like him, you kind of need to emulate what he's doing. And I, I think that that applies for everything. Like if you want to adhere to a schedule and you're not good at that sort of thing, look at someone who does do that, do what they do. Eventually it'll just become a part of what you do. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I kind of did that when I worked with Andrew was I just saw how he worked with bands and just tried to emulate that with the projects that I was doing. How so? The mannerisms of how you talk to a band, no one really teaches you that. You can't really learn that. So that's, you know, more than paying attention to how Andrew was setting the compressor settings or dialing in the room tone EQ. That stuff can be taught separately at a later time. I can ask those questions when the band's gone. But when a band is there and I'm in the room with them, I'm just, I want to observe, at least back then, I wanted to observe the interaction with with a band and understanding how, or at least seeing into how someone like Andrew might 
tell a guitarist that was a bad take or let them know that this tone isn't great and we need to work on this or even with a vocalist telling a vocalist uh, the, the keeping the confidence up with a vocalist but still letting you know figuring out a way to get the best take possible there were a lot of vocalists that came into the studio like that where I'll be honest they weren't the best vocalists but I think Andrew did a really good job of of getting what he needed to get out of them while still making them feel uh you know really confident in themselves as as a member of the band and he never put someone down and and taking those approaches learning learning that approach really helped me when he started to manage me with the bands that I would work with him I I sort of just try and and emulate the same situation and you know I don't I don't know if I would have done the same thing if if I just started working with bands and ha- hadn't gone through Andrew and hadn't seen how someone works like that which I think again is a, is a testament to the courses that we do, like uh, how it's done with Will Putney and how it's done with Chris Crummett. We get to see exactly how they interact with bands, and and that's that's maybe the closest thing that I would be able to emulate to actually being in that room, like I was with Andrew at the time. So learning how these pro- these producers get what we hear on Spotify done, not about mixing, more about the recording side is super fascinating to me and helps in every aspect of, of how you handle yourself in, in any situation, any, any situation that involves you to be confrontational, which is something that I struggle a lot with is, is being conf- confrontational. That's something that I'm, I'm working on more of because I've, I've been kind of a passive human being for my whole life. So I'm really trying to put my foot down more in situations where I need to, uh, but in a way that is, you know, commands some sort of respect, but also is not being a dick, <laughs> you know? Yeah, effective conflict resolution. It's actually hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people hear this stuff on Spotify and they might think, oh shit, that mix sounds amazing. But that's usually as far as it goes. Like they're not thinking about what actually went into taking this from the point where it didn't even exist into something that I'm listening to right now. Like, what were all the steps along the way? I think a lot of people disassociate from the fact that it's humans who made this stuff. Humans had to communicate with each other and uh, go through some hard work in order to make that all happen. I think people are thinking of the skills involved, but they're not thinking of the human side of it too much. And I think that that's actually the way harder part. Totally. I, I completely agree with you because I think there are resources like like Nail the Mix that you can, I mean, you can see the direct approach to mixing, but but something like a course with Chris or a course with Will, that that's where I feel like you're going to learn the, the most, in my opinion, because you're going to get the direct insight to how someone speaks to a client that's paying for their time and paying for the work to be done. And when there's labels involved and getting the, the, the deadlines completed and everything, it, it sort of coincides together to make sure that the project gets done. Because I think a lot of people might, you know, it's a, it's a no shame to this, but the, you know, a lot of people are working with bands that, that aren't signed or whatever. And the deadlines are whenever the band sort of really wants to release it or whenever the mix is done. But when you look at something where there's, there is a deadline looming overhead, they're focusing on getting this project done and they haven't written any of the vocals yet or they're halfway through with the vocals. It's really interesting to watch how, you know, they get that process done in a way that they still come out being like, that was fucking awesome. You know, rather than being like, oh my God, that was a nightmare situation and I hated doing this, blah, 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 blah. But 
So hopefully, so far, I've never seen that that happened yet with any project that I've ever done with Andrew or or any of the stuff that I've done with URM. So I know that happens, but which which is a shame. I think not everyone is designed for the pressure involved with this kind of stuff, which is fine. I think some people just want to do audio that sounds good or write songs and enjoy it, but maybe aren't really after it in the same way because they're frankly not suited for the pressure, which is fine. But I think those who want that really should try to ask themselves how they deal with pressure. Like, are they the type that cracks? Do they come to life under pressure? Are they able to just keep going or does everything fall apart for them? Like what, what's the, what's their history so far under pressure? One of the ways that I found out about myself that I thought that I was suited for this sort of thing was two things happened in my life where uh, it would just dawned on me that like I can handle things. One was a break-in when I was a kid, when I was like seven years old or something or eight years old. Yeah. My parents were gone. They were like at a concert, like my dad was conducting and the alarm went off and the power was cut and someone cut the power and came in the house. And I had to basically grab my brother and escape through a window and all this stuff. And it's pretty dramatic, but it was just like going through the motions for me. And then there was another incident where I was on a road trip when I was like 17 through Florida on one of those long ass stretches like of highway where it's just two lanes and nothing and car engine kind of burst into flames. You know, there were no cell phones or anything like that. Could have been a bad situation. And my two friends were flipping out and I wasn't. I've had a few other situations like that where shit just happens and I just kind of cool down and handle it. Those types of things happening over and over kind of made me realize that, uh, yeah, maybe I can handle a high pressure situation. Actually calm down in those. Um, I'm more stressed out in low pressure situations. So I think that people need to ask themselves, like, how do they react? Which is fine. The way someone reacts is the way they react. But when something gets hard, like, do they feel like they're in their element or out of their element? If they feel like they're in their element, they might be able to handle this sort of thing. That's crazy, by the way, because I, I, that break-in story, I would be terrified as a kid if that happened to me. I don't, I don't know that I would know exactly how to handle that situation. It was crazy because like, I had to go downstairs, figure out what was going on. Once I realized what was going on, then I had to go upstairs and wake this kid up and make sure he wasn't loud. Then I had to get the kid downstairs so that we could go through a window that was on the ground floor. And yeah, a total stealth mission too. Jeez. With the alarm fucking blaring and no electricity. It was, like, <laughs> it was nuts. Damn. I'm always calm in my brain, but I think sometimes I show that I could be stressed out when in all actuality, I have full control of the situation because I think I do, I do thrive in pressure, but sometimes I can come off as anxious when I'm the entire time I'm focused. I know what I need to get done. But that's one thing that I'm trying to work on is like, I guess the poker face element too, where it's like, I, I know that I have this. I just need to just be chill and, and, and knock it out. And there are times where I can, it's similar to like resting bitch face. 
<laughs> you know, when someone when someone is seems like they're upset, but they're not. Like it could be a similar thing that I could I could say with this because I'm thinking about like things like the summit. Like it might seem if you've gone to the summit, you might see that I'm running around frantically. I just I'm walking fast and I know exactly what I need to get done and I'm and I'm I'm pursuing the thing that I need to get done and I'll, I'll execute it. But to someone just walking by me, they'd be like, "Oh shit, what he's running? What, what is he doing?" I'm like, "I'm just I'm just trying to get something done because you know I just want to make sure the live event goes smoothly. That that kind of stuff. Like pressure to me, especially in a situation like the summit, I I really do thrive in in those elements because it's like we got one shot to get this done and then it comes out and when it comes out cool and when it comes out perfect, it's it's so rewarding, you know? Do you feel at home in those uh, situations? Scarily enough, yes, I think I do. Uh, the reason I say it's scary is because like, it's similar to like uh, an, an adrenaline junkie, you know, when they like, they just got to keep jumping out of planes. They got to keep flipping dirt bikes and all that stuff because they're chasing that endorphin. Like I chase the, once this project's done, it's going to be so rewarding to sit back and 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 feel like you know I I accomplished something because that's the end goal right the end goal is to sit back and be like yes I did that and it worked out really really well and then you sort of go through like a three or four day stage of that was awesome and then you're just constantly chasing the all right what's the next thing that I can do that's going to be awesome that I can be like yes that was awesome you know it's just sort of a, a constant loop for me so I think what I would love to call my home state is that like endorphin period of like this this is done it went really smooth i'm really happy about it and then there's the pressure builds back up of to what's the next project that's my circle of life currently i guess do you get a like a depressed lull totally in uh this year from like march to the middle of may i was in a slump mentally i wouldn't say i was depressed but i i was just in a in a funk i i would say and i can't really pinpoint why we were doing some really awesome content then still so it's just one of those things that everyone sort of goes through, I would say. You can't always be at a high point. Yeah, you can't always be on. No, if you were, that would just be a plateau. Right. So by the nature of things being high points, there's going to be a contrast to that. But uh, one thing I've noticed is uh, the hardest part for me is right after a project is accomplished. Hmm. Yeah, then it's like now... What? What is the purpose of my life? <laughs> yeah, my, my life means nothing now. I never really celebrate wins or anything like that because the moment it happens, I mean, it's cool, obviously. You don't want the other option, which is for something not to go well. But uh, once it happens, it's like, now what? What is life? I think I learned that the hard way with one of the first bands that I worked on when I was working with Andrew, you know, he had made a post that was just like, hey, my assistant's looking for some projects. He'll take on projects right now at an extremely low rate, you know, emailing, blah, 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 blah. I got a bunch of emails. I got a band from Arizona. I, I gave them such a cheap rate. It was so ex it was so exciting to me because a band from out of state was going to, you know, drive to Florida to record with me. And we were going to do a full-length album. And I was so excited. It was my first full-length album that I was doing all on my own so excited they they drove they they like took a a school bus and transformed it into a place that they could like sleep out of and like basically use as like a caravan drove all the way to, to florida stayed with me for like two weeks we did like eight songs they went back home and then we sort of talked about like what if we did a couple more songs they drove back out to do a couple more songs and we were you know it was a lot of fun i, I was having the most fun i've ever had producing music because the music was fun to me and, and they were letting me write music with them and, and helping produce the songs and I was writing lyrics and writing parts and it was just a really cool synergy. And then after that second trip, they went home and then one of their band members just quit the band 
without even telling them, just got in their car, drove from Arizona back to the other side of the country where they lived and just didn't even tell them that, that he was that he was quitting. Just like that? Just like that. Ghosted his own band. Ghosted his own band, just left completely. And in my brain, I'm like, I just spent, you know, upwards of a month on this project that I was so stoked on. And now it's just fallen through, you know, the cracks and it's never, I mean, that was 2017 maybe. And that album has never been released. Nothing has ever been released from that project. And that was some of the stuff that I was the most proud of. So like to piggyback off what you're saying, where it's like trying not to celebrate too much the victories. I like to still be like happy with myself that I accomplished something and 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 bask in that for a little bit to to appreciate, you know, the work that I that I did in the project. But for something like that, that was so gut-wrenching to be like the cool. So all this time on this project, <laughs> just up in smoke, vanished. Great. Cause yeah, we we had gone through like the final masters and everything. Like while they were at the studio, we we figured out like the rest of the album. The album's done. You know, like go home, break up, band dismembers completely from that point. And then yeah, they're no longer a band anymore. And now we have 10 songs sitting in a Dropbox folder. <laughs> well, I think that that speaks to the, I guess, wisdom of doing your best to be present and you know, not to sound cheesy, but like in the moment when you're doing the work and trying to get your satisfaction in life out of out of that more so than the actual goal. The act. I don't actually believe that 100%. I couldn't honestly be, I can't honestly sit here and say that I've figured out how to like disassociate from goals or anything. But I do find that it is important to find pleasure in the work itself and find meaning in the work itself because the goal, the outcome is never guaranteed. And you don't want to feel like you wasted your life on something. Yeah. That's a shitty ass feeling. And I think that the solution is if, well, did you really waste your time? I mean, it didn't get released, but what did you get out of that project? Right. Yeah. And that's in, in hindsight now, that's where I, that's where my brain goes now. I think about like, well, I learned a lot about similar to what I was mentioning where I would watch Andrew work with bands. I learned a lot about how I can personally communicate with bands and how I can convey the ideas that I have and convey the options that we need to do to make the song sound better in my mind. And I was able to learn a lot about how I can produce bands in general. And that project really helped shape how I, I did further projects with other bands, which they would then proceed to, you know, release those albums and, and, and actually see the light of day, which is exciting. But that, that, while it does sound like, you know, such a gut-wrenching thing to be like, all that work was for nothing, it wasn't actually for nothing. It wasn't for nothing. Like, I have a whole bag of tricks that I, I took away from that that I then took into the next, you know, eight or nine projects that I did while I was there. Well, I think to clarify for the listeners, I'm not suggesting that people act delusional. So like when something goes wrong, you don't get the outcome you want. I think it is important to say that sucks mm-hmm. or fuck that didn't go well, God damn it, or whatever. I think it's perfectly natural and honest to admit defeat or disappointment or whatever. But the thing is that that's not the whole story. And so it's also kind of, it's incomplete to only feel that, to be able to both recognize the disappointment, but then also recognize all the good stuff that came out of it, I think is, it's like the complete way to walk from a situation that didn't turn out right because it's impossible that 
you got nothing out of a situation. Yeah. It's always something. Especially in a situation where the pandemic happened last year, I would be, I don't even know how I would, would have, if that happened during a pandemic, you know, let's say like they sent me songs to, to mix and we spent a lot of time mixing the songs. And then, you know, after we approved the final mixes and everything, the band just breaks up and they don't release the tracks or whatever. I don't know how mentally I would have been able to handle that in the fucked up situation the pandemic had everyone's brain, you know, like with how crazy times were, were happening and, and how people were feeling, you know, stir crazy being stuck at home and, and all that stuff. Like on top of that, putting something negative, you know, from your work on top of that too. And I'm sure it's happened to someone. I'm sure it would have been hard to try and look at that in a positive light, but that's really the only thing you can do at that point to to sort of keep going, you know, is, is well, here's, here's what I did learn from this experience and, and hopefully trying to move forward. But well, the reason that it's uh, difficult is because it's the most recent thing, right? So you don't have that next project where you took the lessons from this one. You, so you don't have evidence yet that you actually learned good stuff from it or that it was useful yeah. in the future. But this is just from living a while. I've noticed that I have not had any disappointments yet that don't end up someplace better. Like It just hasn't happened every single time uh, that something goes wrong, it like clears the path for something better without fail. There are things that have gone wrong that suck, but regardless of how bad they sucked, something better always came next. So when something goes wrong now, like it's not like I enjoy it, but I guess I have enough of a backlog of this stuff getting better that I can... I can uh, talk myself down. And I guess if someone doesn't have that or they haven't realized it, it could be a lot harder. But I think once, what, if you just realize that like your life has just taken an upwards trajectory and there's been disappointments the whole time, always, like without fail, then uh, are they really so bad? Right. I also says that's a really good outlook on it. Well, you can't avoid them. No, you can't, especially when something like a, you know, say a mic breaks or you drop a mic by mistake, the cymbal cracks or something. It's a, it's disappointing and it's a setback, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it's just one of those things that think of it, think of, think of that happening like a cymbal breaking. It's just, okay, well, it's just, a, it's just a misstep. We'll get it replaced and we'll move on, you know, keep that mindset. I try to think about it like if I was hearing the story from somebody else, what would I think? Mm. So this is something that I realized with breakups. When someone else tells me about that they're going through a breakup, my initial thoughts are always like, just get over it. <laughs> You'll find someone else. And when you're going through it, you don't feel that way. But much in a similar way, if someone is like, God, we had the worst day at the studio, the cymbal stands cracked in half, and then like the drummer had a temper tantrum, and like uh, then we finally got everything working, he starts playing, and then he punches a hole through the snare, and like, and is so stressed out, and it all sucked. And hearing that is like cool story, but not that big of a deal or hearing that like a record didn't turn out well uh, from an outsider's perspective, it doesn't sound like the end of the world. It just sounds like, well, that's kind of sucks, but no big deal. So I think that, um, one of the ways that I have, uh, that I've gotten better also about handling that stuff is to try to think about what would it be like if someone told me this story? Like, what would I think it, as an outsider, like what I think, holy shit, that's a big deal. Or would I be like, eh, kind of sucks, but 
whatever. And I started doing that because of the URM groove. Like when people will post stuff like your story about a band ghosting them or they've been strung along by some client and then the person just disappears or they did 17 mix revisions and like tried so hard and then they got fired. Like all that kind of stuff. Or they were in the running for some project and then the competition got it. Like all that kind of stuff. Reading that kind of stuff, none of it sounds like the biggest deal in the world to me. I know that to the person who's going through it, it seems like a big deal. But like as an outsider, I see that stuff and to me, it's just like, well, that's just a regular part of this. Happens to everybody. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and so I started to apply that kind of thinking to my own disappointments. And it's helped. Like, I don't get, I don't, like, there used to be a point in time where I would stress out about, like, what if something went wrong? Like, what if I wasn't able to book this thing? Or what if we didn't get this tour? Or what if the record deal what if like they offered us the deal, but then they took it away before we signed like that kind of stuff. But like now it's like, well, what if this thing, like for instance, this thing that we're about to go do at the end of next month, mm -hmm. um, what if it fell through? Uh, that would suck, but I don't think that I'd get depressed over it or anything like that. It would just be like, okay, well, what's next? What's next? Yeah. Yeah. Took a while to get to that point though. Yeah. I, I think uh, one of the main problems that I'm experiencing or that I, I, I experience occasionally is we talked about, you know, confidence in stressful situations or confidence in when, when the pressure's on and everything and having that confidence. But one thing that I do a lot is I, I tend to overthink a lot of small things that mean nothing. I've had that since I was a kid where it's, I'll think of just the, a minor, 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 minor detail that doesn't even matter. And it'll, it'll irk me to be like, is that, is that resolved? Did that thing get resolved? It's like, does it matter? <laughs> and I'm, I'm coming to terms with, with that myself that like a lot of these things that I, that I put myself through, a lot of these situations that I put myself through, they just don't matter. Do they ever though? What do you mean? Like have there, okay. So have there been situations where you are sweating the small stuff and the small stuff actually does turn out to be important? Like where it was a good idea that you were hyper-focused on this little detail. Sure. Because that little detail ended up... Well, I think that's know. probably why right now I have that in my brain. Because at some point in my life, probably, I, I, I stressed about the small stuff. And thank God I did because it, it saved, you know blank from happening or, or say, you know what I mean? So I'm sure in my brain at some point that, that, that subconsciously triggered this thing in my brain to be like, well, then now you got to stress the small stuff, you know, cause, cause it happened, it fixed the, the, that one fluke problem once, you know what I mean? It's going to happen. That's going to happen every single time now. And so I'm, I'm working now on rewiring my brain to, to sort of still care about it, but at the same time realize that it's not detrimental you know what I mean? Like one, one small fluke situation like that, you know, might, is, is not the case for every single time, I guess is my point. No. And even a small fluke situation happening, it's not the end of the world either. Right. But I do think it's important to try to develop a system for understanding or trying to understand when that voice is serving you mm -hmm. and when it's not, because sometimes it is serving you. Mm -hmm. I can get kind of paranoid about things sometimes. Not in a conspiracy theory way, but just in a, like, for instance, when I get my mindset on 
like someone's not right for a job or I don't trust this person's intentions or something like that. I cannot get it out of my head. Yeah. Like it's like the switch has been flipped and there's been some times where I've been wrong. And so I know that I'm not always right about this, but the thing is I've been right about it so many times and have like saved us or previous situations from bad things happening because of that voice that like one thing is I need to understand when am I just being an asshole and when is this real? Yeah. Uh, because both, both happen. Um, and, uh, it's tough to, it's tough to figure out when, when you're not being a psycho, like when your gripes or the thing you're focusing on are, is legit. We're cut from the same cloth in that regard. Cause I feel the same exact way. There's a lot of times where I'm, I'm thinking about, am I being an asshole about this? Is it, does it actually matter? Or is it, is it just like, you know, is it a pride thing for me or is it like a, a genuine, like, I think this person will do blank that's detrimental to blank. You know what I mean? Or is it just not matter and I'm just being picky or something? Yeah. It's tough because of the times that you are correct. Right. And then that makes your brain go, well, that this is, this formula worked. So input this formula every single time and you will, you will get the same results or whatever, you know? Yeah. Except it's not true. It's not, it's not the case at all because what happened with somebody in the past does not equal the future, especially if you're dealing with a different person. So you can't superimpose somebody else's personality and character onto this totally independent third party who's got nothing to do with what happened five years ago right. with this one person. Or it's the same person, but five years later, you know, yeah. and, and and they've grown and they've matured as, as a human. And and you can realize that as you've grown as well, as just an instance, you know, maturity as an instance, as an example, anything else could be fill in the blank for that. But but yeah, I, I think you nailed it on the head there. So how do you distinguish between when it's just bullshit in your head and when it's real. Gut feeling. It really is just right now, how I'm handling it is is my gut feeling aspect of things where if, if it's something that like it is 4 a.m. and I cannot sleep because I'm thinking about this, then I'm going to act on it, you know? But if it's something that is stressing me out during dinner and by the time I'm done eating, I can sort of relax about it and, and calm down over it, then I'll, I'll let it just sort of roll off my back and move on to the next thing. Cause trust me, you can't sit and, and worry about every single thing or else you'll go insane. I did that when I, when I first moved to Florida, I was so in my own head cause I knew no one. I was starting a whole new life in a different state by myself. I overthought everything. Am I going to make friends? You know, if I, if I do this thing or, you know, what does this person think of me? All that shit. But I mean, also I was 18. So you, of course you're going to be more conscious of that stuff, but it's of no positive benefit to to sit there and dwell and ex, and and make decisions on every single small thing. I read a book recently called, you know, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and it's all small stuff and and there's a lot of good insight on that book to to sort of help calm down my brain when it comes to to that kind of thing. The thing you said about are you up at 4:30 thinking about it? So last night at about 11 p.m. something really pissed me off mm. that somebody did. Sorry. I'm just kidding. No, it wasn't. You're all good. <laughs> uh, something really like irked me, but I'm like getting ready to go to bed. I have to wake up at six to go run. I need to go to sleep. Is this worth getting worked up over? I made the conscious decision to let it go. And if it bothered me in the morning, then we'll deal with it. 
I woke up and didn't give a fuck. Yeah. So that to me is uh, actually, I think your 4.30 a.m. test is a really good test. I was able to let it go. If it was so important, I wouldn't have been able to let it go. Mm -hmm. I would have stayed up and dealt with it. And then I would have woke up pissed. But I was able to go to sleep and I woke up not caring. If we're just going to go off a gut feeling, that to me is my gut feeling telling me it's not that big of a deal. My girlfriend is like my role model when it comes to that because she, if something bad happens to her, say something at work pissed her off and she's so frustrated in the moment, she can just like turn it off and be like, eh, it's whatever. Like an hour later. And I'm like, where I come from? Like, How? Exactly. I would have fallen asleep, woken up, still been pissed about it, figured out how I could, you know, go through a bunch of scenarios in my head as to what this outcome could be if I do X, Y, and Z to get the situation resolved that I want it resolved. But for her, she's like, this shitty thing happened. I'm really mad. And then like, she'll just take a shower and then be like, yeah, I'm good. I'm like, damn, I'm, I'm so proud of you. That is insane that you could do that. And then I, I, it's something that I really wanted. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Yeah. I'm like, teach me your ways. I'll be Luke Skywalker, be Yoda here. Help me, help me out. How, how do I, how do I do that? Cause I've, I've never been able to do that. Even in high school, I was never able to do that. So, but again, it's just one of those things that I think it's good to talk about the things you're, you want to improve in your life often so that you can remember, you know, why, why you're trying to improve yourself or why you're trying to, to get to the next level or the next goal, which is, you know, all I really want to do is just continue to, to improve and, and, and try and be on as, as, as many, the least amount of plateaus that I can be on in every aspect of my life. If I'm in a plateau when it comes to mixing, if I'm in a plateau with how creatively I can make video editing, if I'm in a plateau with, with how my headspace is, you know, if I'm in a plateau with, can I over, can I stop overthinking this stuff? And, and I'm really trying to just constantly be improving myself to just make me a better person to not only be around, but you know, to work with our, our professional relationship, you and I, I'm, I'm constantly just, and I want to make sure that I'm just dependable. And, and that's really important to, I think, to be thinking about at all times, but at the same time, still focusing on getting the work done, you know? You're pretty dependable. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep 
super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I remember one of the things that was so hard for me about producing bands was when they'd piss me off, not being able to let it go and just like waking up pissed and like just starting to hate them and uh, just not being able to let that, just not being able to get past that made me think that I wasn't suited for it eventually, but like I wasn't able to overcome that. And I think at the beginning of URM, I still had some of those uh, traits, but I've learned how to let to a degree I've learned how to let those feelings go. Um, it's, it took a lot of work though. And it, it was way worse. Did you have the realization while you were still producing or was it more like, you know, year two or so into just working full-time URM is when you had like the, Oh, like I, I used to get so mad and maybe, yeah, maybe I wasn't cut out for that. No, it was before I stopped. Okay. Um, before I stopped, I was looking for something else for years, for a few years, because I was thinking like, this should not be this much torture for me to do the thing that, um, that I worked hard for. This shouldn't be so painful. I should not hate everybody that I work with. Like I shouldn't hate everything about it. This something's not right here. And then I just figured out that it's me because a lot of people I know are cool with those kinds of things. Maybe they don't love it. Like maybe they don't love Bands not being ready. Maybe they don't love labels taking forever to pay. They don't love those things, but um, they're cool with it. Like they tolerate it. It's just fine. With me, it was causing constant hate. Like it, I could not handle that shit. It's not for me. So yeah, so I realized it before I stopped. Um, part of why I wanted to create URM as much as I believed in what it was uh, going to be. It was also for my own sanity. Um, like, I don't think that what I was doing before was going to lead to anything good. Mm. So I do think it's important also, uh, if you find yourself sweating the small stuff too much uh, and find yourself making it too big of a deal and you can't stop, well, maybe the situation's wrong. Could be. Or maybe you're not cut out for that thing. Masio has helped me out a lot with that too. Masio has helped me out with a lot of like uh, just learning to let it play out how it's how it needs to play out, but still being in control of it. How so? There's, I mean, there's a lot of things he he has to do with with you know sponsorships and everything, and, and that's a whole different discussion. But like just here, like seeing how he handles stuff too is let's let's use a sponsorship as an example or something. Let's say I was doing something and and I wanted URM to sponsor something or whatever, and and we're having a back and forth discussion. I'm using URM as the example because I don't want to use any sponsored companies as the example. Mm-hmm. This hasn't actually happened, but let's say like there's a company that is just being you know, either unresponsive or like, you know, five or six email delays. I would be super stressed out in that situation. But I think you and John both have like showed me like, you just got to let those things ride. And and eventually, you know, we see the success. We see the, you know, it takes five years to get X person on to nail the mix. But once it happens, you know, 
it's so rewarding, you know, because it was that five year grind for me. I'd be I'd be so stressed that entire time trying to to make that thing happen because in my brain it's like this thing has to happen, right? So I, and I want it, I need it to happen now, or I want it to happen now. Um, the five year grind, or or not even five, but like maybe three year grind or two year grind to, to get that thing to to be, you know, to come to fruition can be extremely daunting. But I mean, that goes for any project or any, any specific thing you want in your life in general anyways. But well, the, the thing though, is that, yeah, you might want it to happen now, but it doesn't all depend on you. And no matter how hard you push yourself or stress yourself out, it's not going to change the aspect of the project working out. That's got nothing to do with you. Right. So it's not worth, it's not worth the mental effort and the brain ram and the energy if it rests on somebody else's. Yeah. Now, the part that does rely on you, I definitely agree with uh, going hard on and, you know, this has to get done, having that kind of attitude. But it's pointless when it comes to other people. You can't control what they're going to do. If they're always late to respond or flaky or anything like that, I mean, yeah, don't have to love it. But, uh, there's nothing you can do about it. So why get pissed? Which is easier said than done. Totally. It's, and that's, that's a, again, it's one of those things you just, it's, it's a learning process. It's something you have to develop the ability to do rather than, yeah, you can't just flip a switch and be like, yep, yeah, this is, this is how I think now, you know? So it's, but it's, again, it's the small, subtle changes that you do in your daily life. Like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that can help, that can help shape the mindset that you want to have, I suppose. For instance, you know, just by going on a run, even if it's just a calm 10, 11 minute mile run and you go for a few miles, you know, that can, that can release so many endorphins that can shift your perspective on, on something like that. My dad used to, he was a a huge runner before he had a problem with his knee. And and he would just say like, "I, I crave the days of, of, the times that I, I was able to just go out and not think about anything and just run. And then I come back and my headspace is so much better. It's a, working out, man, is, is, is a huge proponent to, to, to your mental headspace, um, which I think a lot of producers might neglect for a major, I would say a majority uh, maybe. Yeah. A majority of us are, are, are hermits that sit at a desk and then, <laughs> you know, we, we go to bed and everything, but, but focusing on, you know, Hey, just get outside and walk three miles and, and breathe in some air put on a podcast and, and sort of, you know, not focus on anything, but your breathing and, and enjoying the area around you can, can do wonders for the work that you're doing when you come back in to your little cave, as in the cave that I'm in right now. And the cave you're in right now, we're both in dimly lit rooms that are just vibey because that's what we do. Yeah. So when people are like, how do you deal with working in a cave? The working in the cave part, it's not the bad part. It's the, if you're only in the cave, that's the bad part. This line of work has kind of the same pitfalls as, say, a programmer or something. I'm sure that people who code encounter the same kind of thing, where they just can get trapped in a dungeon for all day, every day, and never do anything and just lead a ultimately a sedentary lifestyle. But I don't think humans are designed to be sedentary it fucks with our mental health and our ability to think clearly throughout the day. So I do think that more producers should think about this stuff. And the ones that I know who do think about this stuff and do uh, take an opportunity to exercise some and try to be 
somewhat normal functional humans, somewhat, tend to do better. Absolutely. Yeah, they tend to have happier lives and they tend to have less stressful careers, it seems like. I used to not let myself have a vacation. I'd bring my entire rig with me to the beach. Always something to get done, you know? I've learned that, no, there's 52 weeks in the year and I think you deserve at least one to just sort of chill and, and reset your brain a little bit, you know? Yeah, I don't know that I could ever take a actual fully disconnected vacation, but it's a goal. It's a goal to be able to do that at some point. But still, even if you might have to take a couple phone calls, yeah. leaving the rig at home and committing yourself to the vacation is a really important thing to do. Yeah. And I mean, that, that, that's exactly, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. When I say I, I'm taking a vacation, you know, I'm, I still did a Q&A with John in the Discord and I still, we still had our weekly meetings and stuff like that. So like that stuff I don't avoid, but like, yeah, you know, bringing, bringing the computer and everything to, to edit on and everything like that. It's like, that can wait. I used to do that shit like uh, when I was in high school on up to when the band got signed and I had like my own studio. I had like portable rigs. And if the family went on vacation, I took it with me. Yeah. And I just kept working the entire time that I was there. And it's not like I was getting paid for anything. I just right. felt like I needed to practice and I needed to compose X amount of time and um, record X amount of minutes to whatever I was working on. I remember we went to Italy when I was like 17 for like three weeks, like Florence. My dad was doing an opera there and we got this apartment from like the 1500s overlooking the river. The most gorgeous thing you can imagine. Amazing. And I had to have my rig there with me <laughs> and work like six or seven hours a day. And you probably put it in the room with the least amount of windows and... Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. I don't do that kind of shit anymore. Like uh, yeah. I definitely try to take the time off. But there's something that happens when you're able to disconnect that it's almost like your ability to do work regenerates. Yeah. When I see people who never take a break, uh, especially people who are trying to come up in this, they seem to be the worst about it. I feel like that's part of what's getting in their way is they're so wound up and uh, so like unable to disconnect that they never get any real perspective or time to like think about what they're doing. And so if they do experience success, which is cool, it's more of like a product of chance. It's like a product of chance and momentum that kind of just unfolds a certain way, but more often than not, like that doesn't lead to success. I think the ones that I've seen who have had the most success tend to be more calculated and uh, tend to take kind of more breaks and like think about things a little more. Yeah. Especially those who keep their success. But there is also the the person that just loves work. Yeah. Like work is their vacation to some regard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm jealous of them. Me, <laughs> me too. Someone like Will Putney. Well, when I was there to film the, the course, I thought I worked a lot. The dude is a machine. He never slept. I was there for two and a half weeks and he was, he never, he was just working the entire time. He was happy to be doing it and was stoked and was enjoying it. And, and I was like, damn, this is, this was work ethic is insane. And from conversations I've had with him, it's sort of, that's, that's sort of the entire year for him, which is just, I mean, hats off to you, man. Cause, cause the work you do is phenomenal and you're constantly doing it. And that's just amazing to me. The thing is, I don't think that like he has to, I mean, he's working very hard, but I don't think that 
he has to prime himself to get there. I think that that's his natural state. Yeah. Like, I think he's just in his element. His element happens to be very high RPM compared to a normal person. Right. That's crazy to me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. So that's another thing is when you take these hyper achievers like him, when people want to do what they've done, I don't think that they always understand what these people are like. A lot of the, the hyper achievers. Who do you mean? What do you mean? Who do you mean? They people who want what Will has in terms of career and skills. Got it. Or you see that with like when people look at like an Elon Musk or something, not comparing Will to Elon Musk, but like just look at hyper achievers that people want to be like. I don't think that they understand what these people are like, Uh, like what it's like to be around someone who goes 20 hours a day and doesn't get tired. And highly efficient. It's weird. It's not normal. I don't think that these people are trying to be that way. That's the thing. It's like either you are that way or you aren't. Right. It's just how they're wired. Yeah. Now, I don't think that if you're not that way, that that means that you're going to fail at life or anything. But you're going to be up against people like that. Sure. Which is just reality. There has to be extremes in every direction, right? You know, Will is someone who constantly works, but then there's also someone who doesn't, (laughs) I guess, you know? Well, who has a more relaxed approach? Yeah, let's call it that. (laughs) To life. Well, I've met those who have like a lot of success and have a, yes, a life as well. So I don't think, I don't think that like working 20 hours a day is a prerequisite for success. When people look at hyper successful people, they're not taking in the full picture of what it means to be them. Yeah. I'm just curious. uh, I want to talk about going remote with now the mix. Like I don't want to talk about what we actually are doing technically, but I want to talk about uh, the process for figuring out how to do it. So at some point last year when we had postponed like four nail the mixes and it seemed like we're not going to be traveling anytime soon, uh, you started working on a way to do them remote. And what I'm wondering is like, uh, what planted that idea in your head, like to actually do it, not like a shitty ass live stream, but just as good, if not better than if we were in person. What initially planted it was, I want to keep my damn job. <laughs> so I got to figure out how to make this happen. Not that I'm saying that, you know, that's not, I'm saying you were, you wouldn't fire me or whatever. Cause I, you know, this isn't happening. I'm just saying in general from, from the COVID experience, I want to make sure that I can still do my job. That this still exists. Yeah, that this option, this nail the mix show can still happen. Like it doesn't become a COVID casualty. Right, which unfortunately so many things have, which is just heartbreaking. But that was the main first goal was that I don't want this to to crash and I don't want it to be my fault. I don't want to be a part of the shit. It's not happening because I wasn't able to figure something out or something. That's when I started to really dive into the the research of, okay, what are the what are the three main components that I need to get? Four main components. I need to get camera sources. I need to get microphone sources. I need to get the DAW screen and I need to get DAW audio. Those are the four main things that you need in order to make the show run. Now at that point, you you then break that down further. Okay, let's talk about, you know, camera quality-wise. What's the best way to get the best quality remotely? What's the best way to get you know, the microphone quality remotely. What what can the producer, what can you all do on your end as well to send me audio that is already more processed so that it's easier for me to work with 
when it comes to me to, to work on. Because a lot of people don't, a lot of people, when I tell them how we do the show and everything, they think, what's, what's the big deal? Just run the stream from, you know, the computer and, and you're good to go. But, but they, think, they, they think of that as if the producer is the one that's running the stream, right? They think of it as the nail the mix comes from the computer that they're mixing on, which is normal for most people who stream to Twitch or stream to Google or, or YouTube. I mean, if, if you're streaming on your own computer and working on your own computer, it's a lot easier to get all those elements into a streaming software because it's all right there. You know, you just, you have display capture options, you have video capture card options for doing that all. But when you incorporate the elements of the show that involves you talking to the guest, the the guest working in Pro Tools, you know, you asking a question halfway through him working or he or, the, he or she working and, and someone has to switch that. Someone has to be switching those things. You can't ask the producer to do all those switches and also mix the show. That's too much work for one person, especially if they have no idea how to do any of that stuff because why would they? It's not their skill set. That's not their job, you know? Their job is to make it sound awesome. Right, their job is to mix and, and their job is to mix the band that we we brought them on Nail the Mix to do. So looking at those four elements, you just break down further and further, you know, what are things that I can use to get the highest quality to make sure that it is the lowest latency so that I can still switch for in, in most parts in real time. Uh, there's obviously going to be some sort of latency in most parts, even in a, in a call that we're having right now, Al. There's there's latency with 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 mm-hmm. the conversation. That's that's normal when, especially on a phone call, everyone gets that. But like it's it's pretty damn near close to real time. What are the best options to get the highest resolution at still real time? Because a lot of people might say, you know, well, why don't you have the producer set up? on their stream and then they stream that stream to you or something. Well, a lot of times there's that, that inherently adds, you know, 10 to 15 seconds of delay. And then there's no way that I can live switch that in real time. Just because I I, I'm predicting for the most part, when you're going to ask a question, or if you ask a question, I'll pull your fade up really quickly and quickly transition to you because I'm able to do that in real time. You know, I, I did that when we were all in the same room together, where I'd mm-hmm. sort of, you know, I'd, I'd be riding faders and I'd be riding the switcher on video just to make sure that I know when it's time to, to cut to you and everything like that. But finding these solutions was the trickiest part, was finding the, like, the live show itself now is made up of a bunch of different pieces of software and, and hardware that can make the show happen as is. And I am pretty proud to say that you can read everything on the DAW. The DAW plays back in a really nice frame rate. So when you see meters aren't jumpy, and if they are jumpy, it's it's normally from the guest side. It's because they haven't ordered a computer or something, and and it's too much taxing power to send me their their resources and stuff. But but we still make it happen. That kind of stuff. I'm proud that that the show is has evolved into this new version that that honestly I think just feels better than than where it was when we were doing the show in person, I, I'm, I'm able to do more processing on the, on the vocals and, and I have more control of the independent aspects of things because it's all coming to me in different feeds that I have complete control of. So, I mean, it's, it's somewhat, that's somewhat of a technical explanation, but in general, it's, it's, it, it was figuring out how to make this happen so that I still have a job, but then finding the right person to do the testing with for the first nail, the mix. And that's where Dave Otero came into play. Yep. Because Dave understands video fairly well. Dave is a good friend of mine, even though we act like we're not friends on on the internet. Uh, <laughs> and he was able to really help me troubleshoot these things of 
Let's try option A. Let's try option B. You know, we'll go all the way down the list until we find the one thing that was stable for, for that computer and worked well and seemed to be running st- smooth. You know, we do the show. It comes out good. There are things that I can improve. We do the next show. Uh, oh no, Dave was uh, Dave was on Windows and then the next person's on Mac. So now I have to figure out all new solutions to get the same assets that I was getting from Dave, but on a Mac unit instead of Windows. So I have probably four or five different paths I can take now from troubleshooting just based off of what computer do you have and what equipment do you have? Okay, we're going to go option C route to still get that same high quality. Oh, this person's at a different... Okay, we'll go option A because they have this stuff. This is now a full year of remote because I think Dave was either July or August. Yeah, so at this point, we're coming up, yeah, to a full year of, of running the show remotely, which is which is great. And obviously... Um, to anyone listening that's still wondering about the ones that we haven't made up yet, there are specific reasons, obviously, as to why we haven't done those yet, whether it's the producer is moving studio and still getting their new new place sorted out, or uh, the internet connection is not strong enough to be able to, to do the show remotely from where they would like to do it. So those kinds of things we're going to, once more restrictions are lifted and everything, we'll be able to to travel and, and set up those those times to, to make those up. Um, but just so everyone knows, at least, because I'm, I'm sure you get this question a lot, AL, is, is uh, these are still happening. It's not like we're, we're just <laughs> making these, these are still going to happen. Yeah, if they haven't happened, it's because of a reason. The reason isn't that we forgot. Right. Yeah, there's a, re- there's a technical reason, um, whether it's the government not allowing us to go to a certain place and we have to be at that place in order to do it, or person's rig sucks, <laughs> or person's internet sucks, or... They just have zero understanding of, like, even if we explain things to them, yeah, it's just not going to work. Like, we have to be there. Like, it just is what it is. Not not everybody's studio and skill set is compatible with us doing it remote, I think. Absolutely. But, that, I mean, those, those will get resolved. The main part of, like, why I pushed so hard to do the show mobily or remotely is when I'm super passionate about something... I want to be the best at it. That has been another one of those things that that's always been my situation. If I'm passionate about singing, I want to be I want to be first chair all state choir. If I'm passionate about musical, I want to be a lead actor. If I'm passionate about um you know my band, I want to I want to win battle of the bands. That that stuff. That that that's always driven me to just be, you know, I want to try and be the best that I can be. If I'm in a cycle class, I've been taking a lot of cycle classes, and it's 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 nice to see your name on the on the wall, and you're competing against everyone else. I want to be number one. Sometimes it's to my detriment, but in most cases, it pushes me to get the best quality product possible. Whether it's a better, healthy lifestyle, or it's it's winning a trophy, or it, you know, I'm just I'm competitive. I like being competitive, and and I take great pride in in making sure that you know nail the mix is still cutting edge when it comes to a smooth show that people can watch and not have hiccups whilst, whilst watching it. it, it it's, as, it's as smooth as it can be for, for the situation that, that, that we're all in currently. Because a, a lot of companies too in the pandemic have realized how poor their infrastructure was for work, and home, work at home environments. So, you know, things like Zoom, the options in Zoom have elevated tenfold because of, you know, all of these people having to work from home and stuff. So it's it's nice in a way it was it was a decent wake-up call to the world to to realize that people can can work from home. But at the same time, we need the tools to match what we actually need to get done 
you know, because a lot of people are just used to working, you know, if they need to, if they need to talk to someone, they'll go over three cubicles and talk to that person. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like we were already kind of set up for it to a degree. Well, yeah, in a way we did have the infrastructure set to where we didn't have to redesign, you know, from ground up a, a way to communicate with, with, with everyone. It sort of just kept going. And, and the only thing that really changed was it wasn't me filming anymore for fast tracks and stuff. It was me teaching producers how to film or just working with producers who predominantly know how to film themselves more, which luckily so many talented producers, you know, that we know are, are, are film savvy. And I think that, that, that plays into the next thing, which is like, take video seriously. I think that's the next step in audio production is, is being able to offer video services as well. I agree. People are going to want like studio updates or playthrough videos. And if you can, if you can be the studio in your town that offers a badass mix and you're also giving them all this rad footage that, that, you know, a, f- a few tutorials of understanding how a camera works and, and you're, you can you can create something that's usable. You're off to the races when it comes to clients wanting to work with you more. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think musicians too should take video yeah. seriously. Basically, anybody in these fields should take video seriously. That's not to say that they need to like be on the level that we're at or you know try to do it for a living or anything like that. But they should have it in their bag of tricks. Absolutely. You should be savvy enough to be able to do some basic streaming, basic filming, and not have stuff look like a shitty disaster, basically. Yeah. What I would say is, and I'm running into this problem too, where I want to start Twitch streaming. I want to, you know, I I like playing video games. And if I can, if I can have a reason to play video games by doing it, you know, on a stream, then that's great. Because then I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, growing my name whilst also having doing doing the hobby that I like to do. Mm-hmm. But one of the problems that I'm I'm having is like the the fear of the fear of starting. I, I'm I want the first again, my perfectionist aspect comes into play. I want that first stream to be so perfect. It's not gonna be. But exactly. I in my head, I already know it's not gonna be. So I need to just do it. And if that if that's any consolation to to someone who's listening who is also thinking about starting that, just do it and then in four months, you'll watch it back and you'll cringe and it's okay that you're going to cringe because you've figured out how to make it better in that time frame. And and then in four months from that, you'll figure out how to make it better and better and better and you'll constantly be improving yourself. Obviously, th- there's a huge fear of, of just releasing that first thing because it's new and it's scary and you don't know how it's going to be perceived or just basically how people are going to actually take it and, and you're afraid to be rejected or neglected or, or people dislike it or something. Just, just do it. I got to take my own advice and just do it. Do you remember Finn's first YouTube videos? Like the first two? I remember Finn talking about this problem as well, where he was like, I just had to do it. Go to his channel and if they're still up there, just check out the first couple he did. Yeah. That might give you the inspiration to just do it. The drive to just do it, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it's come a really, really long way. Dude, stuff's going to suck at first. If it doesn't suck, that's already like, a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Just it not sucking completely. Yeah. The content in general. Yeah. It being the most amazing thing ever is a little ambitious, but just not sucking is already a huge accomplishment. But there's no way to get to like episode 50 or 100 without doing episode one. So all the improvements that you'll have by episode 50 or stream 50 or whatever, like 
you got to get through streams one through five first. Exactly. And again, that piggybacks off to the previous conversation we had where if it's a quote unquote failure to you, there's still things you learned from that that will make the successes why they're successes, you know? Yeah. It's not a failure. Failure in your mind. You know, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. It's weird because like uh, part of me thinks that like that whole saying of like, it's not a failure unless you quit is not entirely true because if something failed, it failed whether or not you quit. But there is some truth to that. Whereas like uh, it is kind of true where it's not a failure if learned from it and then got better. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this is a good place to uh, end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, hang out. It's been awesome catching back up, even though I talk to you like every day. Uh, Yes. It has been absolutely amazing to be able to chat with you like this. Thanks for having me back on. It was a lot of fun. Anytime. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.